When we come to the beginning of Holy Week and we speak of Palm Sunday, I'm always, my mind immediately goes to the triumphal entry, that moment when Jesus enters into the gates of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and you have uh, crowds who are, are worshiping him and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're going we're gonna to start there today. But I want us to look at kind of a, the totality of what took place on that Sunday, that first day of what we refer to as Holy Week, that first day of the week leading into uh, Jesus's crucifixion and his death and then certainly his resurrection. And as I do that, I come with a little bit of trepidation because there's so much here that I want you to see and I don't want you to miss. Most of you here at some point in your life have been hurt by religion or you've been harmed by someone who was religious, a legalist who, who maybe with very good intentions would, would hold up uh, their standard of, of what they felt like you should live up to. They would hold that standard up against you and show you where you fail. In reality, what happens on that first day of the week, that Palm Sunday, is an encapsulation of what leads to uh, a picture, too, of what leads to Jesus' crucifixion by the religious people of his day. What we're going to see today are, are really three uh, events. We're going to see the triumphal entry, and then we're going to see uh, the religious who come complaining, or, or no, I'm sorry, second, Jesus cleansing the temple because of what the religious were doing to his father's house, and then the religious come in complaining to Jesus about how some were acting in the church or in the synagogue or in the temple. So well, I want you to, to just bear with me and, and pray with me. Uh, in all honesty, as I work through this text, there's so much that I want to say, and I know that I can't say it all on one Sunday morning in 35 or 30 or 55 minutes. I won't go that long. Uh, I really can't, but there's a lot here. And so let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts that we might hear what he wants us to hear. Father, as we come into your presence, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, the eyes of our heart to see the truth of your word. Certainly Jesus was put to death by those religious who sought to kill him as we just read about in, in Luke. We'll see the same thing here in Matthew. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come with a heart of religiosity. In fact, when he rose up out of the grave, when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand and to see the truth of your word and the kind of person who you're calling us to and the kind of people you're calling us to be. Let your word speak when we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the beginning of the passage is going to be very familiar. In fact, most of what we read in Matthew chapter 21 will be very familiar to you. We're going to look at Matthew's account uh, in our worship time. We already read a good portion of Luke's account of this day. But beginning in verse 20, in verse 1 of chapter 21 of Matthew, the scripture says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you, 
At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid the clothes on them, and he sat on them. Very large crowds spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the temples of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it, or you are making it, a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. The next passage, verse 18, picks up day two, so early in the morning. So we're going to pause and we're going to stop at, at verse 17. And I want us to, to dig in a little bit into these three primary sections, these three primary events that took place on Palm Sunday. And the first one is what we tend to celebrate. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem that week, and it is going to be a long week for him. You're going to see a lot of teaching uh, in Matthew 22, 23, 24, you see Jesus going to head to head, to head with uh, some of the priests and the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and uh, you also see various uh, kind of times of celebration and excitement leading into uh, to, to that weekend. And yet, here on this first day, what you see are some people who got it and some people that didn't. Jesus, Matthew writes this in such a way that we understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a couple things that I wanted to make note of here as I move through. The first is we continue to see God's plan unfold. You have this cool little story of Jesus telling his disciples, he, he says, go ahead of me and go up into Jerusalem and uh, there's going to be a donkey and its colt tied there together. Untie him and bring him to me. And if the guy asks you, uh, why you're taking him, just tell him why, and he'll say okay. Now, as best we know, Jesus didn't have any time to send an envoy ahead. There was no uh, special preparation. Jesus had not made a phone call. He hadn't sent an email. He didn't send a text to the guy saying, have the donkey and the colt ready. This is just simply a miraculous event that Jesus knew where the colt and the donkey were going to be, and Jesus sent his disciples to get it, and Jesus knew exactly what the response of the owner of that colt and donkey were going to be. Now, the reason that I point this out, and I've heard whole sermons preached just on the, on, on the donkey, but the reason that I point this out is because it reminds us that every 
minute detail leading up to the crucifixion was planned by God. There was no accident. Nothing surprised the Heavenly Father that way. He didn't come to, to, to uh, some point in the week and panic because now the religious leaders are all against my son and he's going to... None of that happened. All of this was planned. It was God's purpose and God's plan. Every little detail was laid out and pre-planned by a holy, sovereign God. And, and that's beautiful to me because I forget that sometimes when we struggle with things in life that God isn't surprised. I was talking about it in our growth group this morning. I'm, I'm a, we're dealing with issues with insurance companies still. The lawyers want me to have another meeting with them again. I, that does nothing but stress me out until I pause and remember that he is king of kings and lord of lords. It doesn't surprise the Lord that we're going to have to be dealing with these issues. He's God. It's his church, his people, and we can trust him. Every detail of what seems to be one of the most horrific weeks <laughs> up until the resurrection, one of the most horrific weeks was purposed and planned by God every step of the way. The, sec the second thing that I want you to see here and that I want you to be encouraged by is it's, it's once again clear, and Matthew is making certain that everybody understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He references Zechariah 9.9 here. He says, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And he references Zechariah 9.9 word for word, if you go back and read it uh, in Zechariah 9. Your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt in the foal of a donkey. That messianic prophet prophecy that was made hundreds of years before is today before their very eyes being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And even though not everyone got it, some did, or at least they begin to catch on to the idea. And so you have uh, on this incredible week, during this incredible week, on this special day, Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. And he's doing it in a way that if anybody knows Scripture and is paying attention, they can make that connection. They can look back and, and, and read the Scripture, they can apply And you would think that the people that would get that first and foremost are those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those scribes who knew Scripture best. But there's something that I want you to understand that we're going to look at here in a moment. They were also the most religious. And they had their, their minds made up. Their, they had their, their focus on their kind of religion. And sometimes those who are the most religious are the ones who are most set in their ways and cannot see the truth that is set before them. That's why Jesus tells the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes in John chapter 5 when he, he tells them that you know the Scripture, but the Scripture points to me, and you miss me. You don't see the fact that I've come from my Father. Oftentimes, it is the religious who are the ones who will miss the work of God because they're so caught up in thinking that God is only going to function in their way. So Jesus is recognized by many here as at least a prophet. Some recognize him as the Messiah. 
The religious see him as an enemy. They see him as someone who threatens their religion. Here Jesus is coming as a fulfillment of everything that these men say they believe in, and they miss him. And so you see uh, the, the question there in Jerusalem, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. And so you have some who were there worshiping, some who are cutting palm branches and laying them out on the, on the, the road in front of Jesus, some who are taking their clothes and their cloak off and putting it in front of his donkey, some who are bowing down and worshiping and calling out, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have some who recognize that a Messiah has entered. You have some who say, well, he's, a, he's that prophet Jesus from Nazareth. But then you have a large crowd throughout Jerusalem who are saying, who is this? What the heck's going on? They're clueless. They're like the people outside the gate. They just They haven't paid attention. They don't know what's going on. And then you have the religious who miss who Jesus really is. They know something's going on here but they miss who he really is. Now, I, want to, I want us to, to take, a, take a pause here because this is where the sermon is going to change directions a little bit. That first part of Palm Sunday, it's a, it's a celebratory worship of the king who's entered into the, the gates of Jerusalem. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a picture of, of Jesus coming as a humble, suffering servant. All of the things that we in the, in the Christian church, and, and we as Baptists have been taught to, to celebrate and, 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 and look, you know, to look forward to on Holy Week and, and to lift up and to praise Him for. But what this day really does is it, it creates a pretty good picture of what happens the rest of the week. You have some who get it, and you have most who don't. And those who don't are those whom Jesus begins to expose in verse 12, those religious in the temple who are selling and buying. And then the, the religious who come to him complaining. And if you look ahead and you read Matthew 22 and Matthew 23, you see Jesus begin to tell parables as he, uh, as he attacks and challenges the authority of the religious people of his day. He shares the parable of the wedding banquet when basically he says there's a whole bunch that are invited, but y'all don't show up. So we have to go out into the hedgerows and, and find those who would believe, who would come to the king's table. He goes on to... to uh, confront the Sadducees on their, their view of the resurrection. Later on, he comes, he gets very direct with the Pharisees, and I won't read all of it, but you can read chapter 23 when, when he says things like this, you scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. He didn't mince any words. You have the whole of chapter 23, Jesus there confronting directly the most religious people of his day because though they are religious, they have missed him. Heard a story this week. It was a story of a, of a man who's walking down the road, in a country road. He's going for a walk, and he, he's coming to a, a bridge, and he sees a guy up on the edge of this bridge, and he's standing on the, on the railing of the bridge, and it looks like the guy's about to jump. So the first guy asks him, he says, what are you doing? And he goes, Life is just overwhelming. It's difficult. I can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm going to jump off this bridge and end it all. And the guy says, don't do that. Why, why would you do that? 
He says, look, do you believe in God? And the, the man on the edge of the bridge, he says, yes, I believe in God. So he asked him, he said, well, are, are you a Christian? Well, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. Okay, well, I, I'm a Christian too. And so let me help you. Well, are, are you Catholic or Protestant? And the guy says, well, I'm, I'm a Protestant. He goes, I am too. I'm a Protestant as well. And they begin to see this connection that they have similar beliefs and they have similar faith. And so he asked the guy, he goes, well, are you Baptist? The guy said, yes, I'm Baptist. Well, I'm a Baptist too. We're both Baptists. Let me help you through this. Well, are you, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Well, I'm, I'm Southern Baptist. Well, I'm Southern Baptist too. I've been Southern Baptist my whole life. And you, you see the connection between the two begin to grow and, and they have these similarities of faith. And so but the, but the guy is still a little skeptical. The guy's walking down the road, and he goes, well, what about the Baptist faith and message? Do you believe in the Baptist faith and message? And the guy says, oh, yeah. Our church holds to the Baptist faith and message. It's our primary outline of our doctrine. He goes, oh, that's awesome. Ours does too. Well, which one? The Baptist faith and message from 1925 or 1963 or 2000? And the guy on the edge of the bridge, he says, oh, our church holds to the Baptist faith and message 2000. You know, it's the most conservative of the documents. And he says, ours does too. We're a conservative Southern Baptist church. That's awesome. And then he says, well, well wait a minute. There's a new, there's this issue that's come up the last few years. Are you complementarian or are you egalitarian? And the guy says, well, I'm complementarian. I believe God created men and women a little bit. He created us differently for unique roles in the church and that we complement each other. And the guy asks another question. He goes, yeah, but... What about, are, are you a hard complementarian? Or are you a soft complementarian? Are you a hard complementarian that, 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 that really nails down and limits the roles, or, or are you a soft complementarian? You give a little bit more freedom to women to serve in various places in your church. And the guy on the edge of the bridge, he goes, well, I'm, I would have to define myself as a soft complementarian. So the first guy called him a heretic and pushed him off the bridge. Sadly, that's where religion leads. And you could use various illustrations there. I, I thought about when I brought that down to the end, I, you could ask the question, you know, do you believe in the five solas? Yeah. Well, do you believe in limited atonement or unlimited atonement? We'll go to war over that. That's where religion leads. It forgets the heart of Jesus for people, and it drills down on, oftentimes, theology or rules or laws or regulations, and it causes us to miss the heart of Jesus. Watch what happens in, verse 20, in chapter 21 there, starting in verse 12. The scripture then says, Jesus went into the temple and he threw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it into a den of thieves. I'd suggest to you that religion can thwart a relationship with God when the accoutrements of religion become a hindrance to knowing God. Now, that's a big word. I had to look up how to spell it, accoutrements, but I couldn't figure out a better way to put it. Those things that, that connect us to religion oftentimes become more important to us than the heart of God whom we come to worship. 
And there's several ways that those accoutrements of religion can get in the way. Sometimes it's as simple as this. Do you use this kind of Lord's Supper cup or this kind of Lord's Supper cup? Do you use this kind of bread or do you use that kind of bread? See, the, the, the heart of, of the Lord's Supper is coming together to, memory, to remember what Jesus did for us. It's, the Lord's Supper is sim, a symbol of something incredible and great that Christ did for us. And so the, 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 the Lord's Supper as, as a given to us as Christ, as a way to, to look to him and to remember the blood that he shed on the cross and the fact that he's going to return. Oftentimes we get into arguments and fusses over the specifics about it. Here, in this case, the there was a requirement in, under the Jewish law for how the sacrifices would take place. And people would travel from long distances to make these sacrifices. And so people would set up to sell them. Merchants would sell them a dove or, or a, a, a donkey or a sheep. Not a donkey, but a sheep or a lamb that they could sell. They would sell to them so that they could use it to make sacrifices. And so those were part of the religious exercise. There was nothing wrong with selling a donkey or sheep, but where they were doing it and how they were doing it is in a way that dishonored God. And so their religious exercises had begun to come in between the people and God's heart. Greed is one of those things that often corrupts our religion. First Timothy says, he doesn't say that money is evil. Often people mis, oftentimes people misquote that verse. They say, you know, money is the root of all evil. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Well, what happens is we get so caught up in the things of this world that money will corrupt our worship and invade our religion. Even to the point that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that you have to watch out for false prophets, those who claim to be preachers and teachers of God's Word, but they're doing it for the purpose of money. They're doing it out of greed. I can't imagine that we would see anybody in our day and age that were trying to get rich off of the gospel preaching from a heart of greed. We know better than that. It was happening in Jesus' time, it was happening in Paul's time, it's happening in Peter's time, it's happening today. But all of the, the, the accoutrements of religion, all of the things that surround our religious exercises can become stumbling blocks for what God really desires from us. Sometimes it's those things that keep us from reaching the heart of God. We get tripped up by our religion and we miss God. That's what's happened to the Pharisees here and the Sadducees and, and the leaders. Even the worshipers who are coming to the temple, they're getting tripped up by their religion and they're missing God. These sacrifices that were required before Christ point to what's going to happen at the end of the week, the inevitable death of Christ so that we could have forgiveness of sin and cleansing and receive salvation. Jesus, at this point, he's concerned about reverence in the temple of God. The religious are still focused on the sacrificial system and getting it right. Now, I'll pause for just a moment because was the specifics of fulfilling all of the sacrificial law, 
Was that ever what God was truly looking for, even in the Old Testament? You know, if you read Leviticus and Numbers and and Deuteronomy and take those out of context, it seems like it. But when you step back and you look at the whole of God's law, you understand that even the religious sacrificial system of the Old Testament was God's desire to point us to him and to bring us into a relationship with him. So that later on among the prophets, several times you hear prophets say something like this. You hear uh, Samuel say it to Saul. But God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. He wants your obedience. From the very beginning, Abram wasn't saved because of his sacrifices. There weren't even any sacrifices. Abram was saved by faith. God's desire from the beginning was for the heart of man. He wanted to connect with us, not that we become religious people that figure out how to go through certain exercises and follow certain rules. In fact, religion oftentimes confuses not only the very purpose of God, but it confuses the, our, our very purpose in this world. When you get to the next section there in verses 14 down through verse 17, you see a beautiful picture of children in the temple singing loud praises to God. But the older religious leaders, all they could hear was a racket that they didn't like. You know what, in, in all honesty, though sometimes it could be a little distracting, I think one of the most beautiful sounds are babies and children in the house of worship. Because it's re- those, those children are the ones who can come truly with simple faith in Jesus that far too often we miss. Don't ever, if your church is filled with children who are there and worship with their families, don't ever complain about the noise that's coming from the children. You're missing God's heart if you do. Jesus said, let the kids come to me. Yeah, toddlers can be a mess. I remember one day I was preaching an intense message on a Sunday evening. We lived next to the parsonage in May. We were in the old sanctuary, and it was we had morning and evening preaching. And I look up, and my daughter is sitting on the. It might have been a morning service because Susan was up in the choir. It had to have been. Uh, two of our daughters were sitting out there on the third row, and Kelsey gets up. And she's about six or seven years old at the most. She gets up, walks down the center aisle, goes out by the stage, and goes out the door. All I can do is just keep preaching. I don't know what she's doing. A little bit later, I hear a ruckus in the back of the church. We had one door back there, a little foyer in there, and you hear some banging around when the deacon gets up and looks. Before the deacon could open the door, Kelsey's come in the outside door. She opens the inside door, and here she comes with popcorn and Cheetos right down the aisle. (laughs) Comes down, plops down on the third row. Dad must have been preaching long, and she needed a snack. Uh, That's all I could say. It didn't, it didn't disrupt. There was a laugh. But that doesn't disrupt the work of God in the hearts of his people. The children were singing songs that the Pharisees didn't want to hear. I think sometimes our religion gets us so caught up in the type or the style of music that we want to sing that we can miss God. 
Sometimes our, our religious exercises uh, get, us, get us into a routine and get us into a pattern. You know, I wonder every once in a while if, if Matthew just flipped things around, had me get up right after the, the, uh, the, the video and start preaching, if everybody would go into a panic because we did things differently. You can't preach first and then have worship, can you? But the bottom line is our religious exercise gets us caught up and it gets us in these patterns and it gets us focused on the religion. And, and we think that somehow we're going to get to God because of our religion. We cannot get to God through religion. In fact, I would submit that more often than not, our religious exercise and sometimes our religious theology that gets so cemented in our head will, can cause us to miss God when he moves and he speaks and he works in our midst. And there's a reason for that. God never intended for us to get caught up in religion. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. You see Jesus here in, in verse 14 through 17, he's more concerned about the heart of people than the religious are. The religious are concerned about the noise coming from the children. Jesus is concerned about what's going on in the heart. Religion can de derail us and distract us and cause us to miss God's heart. What Jesus did at the end of this week that we'll celebrate was to destroy that system of rules and that religion, those exercises, so that we could be reunited to the heart of a holy God. Jesus came to save us from ourselves and to save us from religion. See, what one of the things that religion is all about, it's about us trying to do some things so that we can measure up to God. You can't. I can't. None of us can do enough things, no matter how religious we are, we cannot do enough to measure up to God's standard. Our only hope is that God say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear those rules apart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy those rules. I'm, I'm going so to take them out of the way. I'm going to remove them as an, as an encumbrance so that you can come to me with your whole heart. I hesitated to read this passage, but I couldn't help it. In a couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to preach through. We're going to study the, the book of Colossians together. But there's no better place that illustrates this than Colossians chapter 1, when he says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him and forgave us of all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross that Friday... He took away the debt of obligations, our debt to the law, our debt to the rules and regulations, the encumbrance of religion, and he nailed it to the cross. He even disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. And so Paul says in Colossians, therefore don't let anybody judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of the festival or a new moon or Sabbath day because these are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance is Christ. Religion 
religious exercise, even if it's good religious exercise. As we gather together for the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the ordinance of baptism. Those two ordinances granted to us by Christ are still only pictures. They're shadows. The substance is Jesus. And if you get caught up in the rules and the regulations and you miss Jesus, you've missed the substance. You've missed what matters. The Pharisees and Sadducees, as they walked through that week, as Jesus continued to confront them, they were the most religious people of their day, and yet they missed the substance. They missed what mattered. They missed Jesus. Why is religion so destructive? First, it attempts the impossible. A religion attempts to give us a way that we can measure up to and reach God, and that's impossible. You can never do it. Second, religion is ripe for corruption. You see it in Judaism, you see it in the church of history, and you see it in the church today. Religion is ripe for corruption. Third, religion tends to elevate rules and preferences over people. And you never see God do that in Christ. In fact, you'll see Jesus on the Sabbath day healing someone who has a withered hand. The religious will call him out for it and say, that's a sin, he broke the rules of the Sabbath. Jesus will say, have you forgotten that people matter more than your particular rule of the Sabbath? Jesus came to restore a relationship between God and us. We are sinners who are headed to hell because we're separated from a holy God. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. His goal was restoration of a relationship because God's greatest concern is about his people. Our hope is in that relationship with Christ. It is not in our religious exercises. And when you step back from the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, what you see already is this conflict between some who got it, that he was the Messiah, some who were getting there because they recognized that he was a prophet that had come from God, and then some who were so caught up in the religion that they would never get it. They would never understand the purpose that Jesus came and entered into this world was to die on a cross so that he could destroy their religion and destroy that barrier between God and man and restore a relationship between a holy God and lost mankind. Let us never allow our religion to become so important to us, our religious exercise to become so crucial to us that we miss the heart of God. We get into patterns and, and, and we get in our, our thought processes and, and we begin to nail down on those and we begin to, sometimes they're very meaningful to us. And sometimes because that's the way we did it when I was growing up in the church. Or that's the way my grandparents worshiped Jesus. And, and that's been passed down to me. Sometimes the type of hymns that we sing or the type of books that we use or, or the type of Lord's Supper uh, elements that, that, we, that we use, those, those are important to us because of a connection of faith. 
But those are never more important because they're not than Jesus because they are not the substance of our faith. Jesus and Jesus alone makes up what matters for our faith in a holy God. Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. All the rest is ornaments. Jesus is what matters. If you miss him, none of the rest of it matters. If you let religion come between you and Jesus, you're really putting yourself in the same position as the religious. You've let what's ancillary prevent you from what matters. And Jesus and a relationship with him is what matters. In fact, it's really all that matters, the Apostle Paul would say in Colossians. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.